0: I am Dr. Rapp, and this is Appreciating Shakespeare, Series 1, Chapter 7, Why All the Footnotes, Shakespeare's Mental Furniture, Session 4, Disintegrating Forces. In the previous three sessions, we looked at the more or less unified worldview that Shakespeare inherited from the medieval Christian and classical humanist traditions. Today we will look at the forces already at work in Shakespeare's time that were tending to break up that more or less unified world view. At the same time that Shakespeare was inheriting the great medieval synthesis as the ground of his thought there were forces in motion that tended to the disintegration of that great synthesis. These forces had been set in motion by the resurgence of the study of ancient languages and art, the emphasis on human reason, and the reassessment of Christian doctrine, all of which characterized Renaissance humanism. Specifically, the 15th and 16th centuries produced calls for religious reform, radical skepticism, and a passion for the science of the physical world. First, there were the Protestant Reformation, and the religious wars arising from it. The reassessment of religious doctrines and the reaction to the corruption of elements among the clergy of the Catholic Church were among the forces that led to the Protestant Reformation, whose central figures were Martin Luther and John Calvin. Luther's 95 theses, submitted for debate, and probably nailed to the door of All Saints Church in Wittenberg, Germany in 1517, are considered the initiation of the Reformation. The reform movements, passionately embraced by many, particularly in northern Europe, focused on certain theological differences with Catholic dogma. Protestants believed that salvation comes only through faith, sola fide, and not also through good works that is, the sacraments of the Church. Protestants believed that only Scripture, sola scriptura, and not the Church, was the source of true doctrine. Other controversies involved the existence and nature of purgatory, whether men could benefit spiritually from the merits of the saints, the Church's authorization of the sale of spiritual indulgences, and the actual and perceived corruption of the Catholic clergy and in particular of the Roman Curia, that is, the upper echelons of the Church hierarchy. The Reformation movement intertwined with political divisions in Europe led to a long series of religious wars. Roman Catholics against Calvinist Huguenots in France, Belgian and Netherland Protestants against Catholic Spain, culminating in the devastating all-out Thirty Years' War from 1618 to 1648, which resulted in 8 million dead. The peace of Westphalia in 1648 effectively ended the European wars between Protestants and Catholics by establishing several principles that became staples of later European and world political history. Sovereign states, peaceful coexistence, balance of power, and the principle cuius regio, Eius religio, that is, the ruler's religion determines the religion of those he rules. In England, the conflict between the Protestant movement and the Catholic Church took the form of persecutions of Catholics, then of Protestants, then again of Catholics, by the successive monarchs and their courts and parliaments. Henry VIII was the first to break with Rome over his desire to divorce his wife and Mary Anne Boleyn. He called Parliament into the series of sessions later called the Reformation Parliament, from 1529 to 1536, which outlawed various relations to the Church of Rome. In 1534, by the Act of Supremacy, he made himself the head of the Church of England. For refusing to accept that act, Sir Thomas More died a martyr and was later recognized as a saint by the Catholic Church. By 1536, nearly 400 lesser monasteries had been suppressed and Henry's ten articles of faith were published. In 1539, over 600 of the greater monasteries were suppressed and their property given to the king's favorites or sold under henry's short-lived son edward the 6th the catholic mass was abolished and in 1549 use of the protestant first prayer book was made compulsory when mary tudor became queen 1553 to 1558 she took many steps to restore the position of catholics and the church she married the catholic philip ii of spain reconciled with rome And in 1555, repealed the Act of Supremacy, thereby restoring the English Church's loyalty to the Pope. She also had many illustrious Protestant leaders burnt at the stake. Then Elizabeth I became Queen, and with the Parliament of 1559, re established Protestantism in England. By the second Act of Supremacy, Elizabeth became not supreme head because Christ is called the head of the Church, but supreme governor of the Church of England. Use of the prayer book of 1552 was required, as was regular church attendance. Under Elizabeth, the Puritan movement grew, and by the Sedition Bill of 1581, Parliament made it an act of high treason to be converted to Catholicism. Upon the death of Elizabeth in 1603, King James VI of Scotland became King James I of England, thereby uniting the two kingdoms and succeeding Elizabeth as the supreme governor of the Church of England. Because he rejected the various demands of the Puritans in the Hampton Court Conference of 1604, and because of what they felt to be religious intolerance, the Pilgrim Fathers, under John Bradford, set sail in 1620 for the New World landing near what was later to become Boston and founding the new Plymouth colony. During Shakespeare's life, which overlapped with the reigns of Elizabeth and James, all public discussion, including fictional discussion, of religious matters, took place in the context of this succession of alternating rules and persecutions. It was always dangerous to espouse, or even seem to espouse, a theological or religious position not approved by the monarch and parliament. Hence, Shakespeare took care to avoid articulating unauthorized religious claims in his plays or to put them, when necessary, into the mouths of villains or foreigners or both. In this context of religious and political conflicts, radical skepticism about religion in the light of practical politics came to be most influentially represented by Niccolò Machiavelli. In his work The Prince, he advised his prince, meaning the advice to apply to any prince, on how to maintain power and control over the state in the name of stability and the achievement of political goals. The work treats religious observance, faith, and morality as tools of the ruler rather than as absolute goods. As a result, to many, Machiavelli seemed to overturn the ultimate authority of God and the moral law in favour of practical success. Where morality served the practical purposes of the prince, it ought to be practised. Where compromise of moral or religious principles might serve the prince's political purposes, compromise and immorality were called for. As a result of this inversion of the hierarchy of values, Machiavelli became a watchword of Renaissance drama, a representation of all that was proud, self-serving, immoral, and undermining of the moral tradition and of the political tradition that held the prince to be responsible to God above all. The clearest example of this perhaps somewhat unjust representation of Machiavelli comes in the prologue to Christopher Marlowe's play The Jew of Malta. In which Machiavel says, I count religion but a childish toy, and hold there is no sin but ignorance, and might, that is, not God, first made kings, and laws were then most sure when, like the Dracos, they were writ in blood. Draco was an ancient lawgiver of Athenian tradition, who made death the penalty for most offences. The idea that he wrote his laws in blood rather than ink comes via Plutarch. In Marlowe's play, Machiavelli appears as the sponsor of the evil Barabbas, whom, ironically, he wishes us to grace as he deserves. Barabbas ends up boiled in the cauldron he had prepared for others, the just punishment for his Machiavellian crimes there are three references to machiavelli in shakespeare the english in henry the Sixth, part i before condemning joan de pucelle that is joan of arc to death hear her claim three different men one of whom is the french duke of alencon to be the father of her supposed unborn child thereupon the duke of york says of his enemy frenchman at act v scene Four, line 74 Allenson, that notorious Machiavel. In Henry the Part Three, the evil Richard, Duke of Gloucester, later to become Richard the says at Act Three, Scene Two, lines one ninety-one to one ninety-five, "I can add colours to the chameleon, change shapes with Proteus for advantages, and set the murderous Machiavel to school. Can I do this and cannot get a crown?" Were it farther off, I'd pluck it down. Through intrigue and murder, he succeeds, though temporarily. To set to school means that Richard could teach Machiavelli a thing or two about using evil means to pursue one's own self-interest. Finally, in The Merry Wives of Windsor, the host of the Garter Inn, in an effort to make peace between Sir Hugh Evans, the Welsh parson, and Dr Caius, or Keyes, the French physician, who are intending to have a duel, rhetorically asks, am I politic, meaning cynically plotting, am I subtle, meaning crafty, am I a machiavel here meaning an intriguer? The implied answer is no. However moral or immoral the historical Machiavelli may have been, his book seemed to compromise the generally shared values of the age, possibly under the influence of a book called anti machiavel A Discourse Upon the Means of Well-Governing by innocent Gentier, a French Huguenot, the English playwrights took the image of Machiavelli to represent the enemy of religion, morality, justice, and righteousness by embodying moral relativism in the service of self-interest and political advantage the characters who espouse his views almost invariably end up suffering just punishment, and their plans, after varying amounts of destruction, come to nothing. The Reformation movement's renunciation of the absolute authority of the Church and the Machiavellian renunciation of the absolute authority of traditional morality were joined by the new worship of human reason in the area of comprehending and mastering the physical world. The central representative of the aspirations of the new science was Sir Francis Bacon, who served Queen Elizabeth I as her attorney and James I as Attorney General and then Lord Chancellor. Bacon was influential as a legal theorist, and his work is said to have influenced the Napoleonic Code and the English law reforms of the 19th century. It is to Bacon that we owe the report that the Earl of Essex, just before his failed attempt to overthrow the Queen in 1601, sent his co-conspirator Jelly Merrick to hire Shakespeare's company to do a performance of Richard II about the deposing of a king. Merrick had to pay extra for that performance because, as the company said, it was an old play that, quote, they should have loss in playing because few would come to it. The report appears in Bacon's Declaration of Practices and Treasons by Robert, late Earl of Essex. But Bacon's greatest importance was as the author of the Novum Organum, dated 1620, an updating of Aristotle's organon on deductive logic. Bacon's new method favored inductive reasoning and experimentation which became, in practice, the foundation of the modern scientific method. The Novum Organum was published after Shakespeare's death, but Bacon had already published The Advancement of Learning in 1605. Both these and other works articulate a major force contributing to the disintegration of the medieval synthesis discussed earlier. In his book called The Abolition of Man, C.S. Lewis points out that Bacon's enterprise was the same as that of the magician, to make man, rather than God, the master of the physical world. Lewis writes, For the wise men of old, the cardinal problem had been how to conform the soul to reality, and the solution had been knowledge, self-discipline, and virtue. For magic and applied science alike, by contrast, the problem is how to subdue reality to the wishes of men. To achieve this goal, both the magician and the scientist are ready to do things hitherto regarded as disgusting and impious, such as digging up and mutilating the dead. In Christopher Marlowe's Dr. Faustus, the protagonist, seeking magical power and omnipotence, sells his soul to the devil in order to become, as he says at line 60, a mighty god. Francis Bacon says Lewis, quote, rejects magic because it does not work, but his goal is that of the magician, that is, finding ways to make the physical world do man's bidding. There is plenty of evidence that Shakespeare valued practical knowledge in the service of people. Friar Lawrence's knowledge of the power of herbs and flowers to harm and heal, quoted in the previous session, is an example. Nonetheless, Shakespeare rejects Bacon's valuing the practical benefits of knowledge above virtue. He is of the older school, as one sees in his portrayal of the art of medicine. What Shakespeare stresses in his good doctors is knowledge in the service of healing, and healing in the context of virtuous piety and humility. Examples include the doctor in King Lear, the English and Scottish doctors in Macbeth, Saruman in Pericles, and Cornelius in Cymbeline. Aware of the disintegrators, Shakespeare throughout his career dramatized the perennial authenticity of the older integrated picture of the world. In the next session, the last of this chapter, we will look at the concept of decorum, the nature of realism in morality plays, and the notion that foreground is background. I am Dr. Rapp, and this is Appreciating Shakespeare.